you are dismissed for children's church at this time. Those were rookie mistakes there. I don't know, man. But let's take our Bibles and we'll turn to Acts chapter 19. And as we come to this text, we see that there are differing responses to the truth. Some people hear the truth and they immediately respond in the affirmative. They believe it and they allow it to change their lives. Some people hear the truth and they resist. They insist on going their own independent way and as a result, they fall into all of the consequences that come when we reject the truth. And then there are some people who try to amend the truth. Part of it must be true, so I'll embrace that, but part of it I'm just not willing to embrace, so I'm going to make it my own truth and do my own thing. And we see all three of those responses when we come to Acts chapter 19. Now what we find in the text this morning is something that reminds me of my youth as I was growing up in West Virginia. In West Virginia, you would have these roads that were so crooked, that little squiggle there barely begins to indicate how windy that road is. In fact, sometimes we would say that the roads had such a curve in it, you would see your own brake lights as you were making the turn. Really sharp curves. And so when we see a sign like that, what do we do? Well, there are some people who say, you know, I can see ahead and it does look like it's going to curb, so you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to adjust my speed. I'm going to slow down. I'm going to say, if I'm going to make it through those dangerous curves safely, then I have to decrease the momentum of my car or I'm going into the hillside or over the hillside. So they amend what they're doing. Now, there are some people who say, nobody's going to tell me what to do. I'm not going to slow down. I'm going to speed up. You can't tell me how to drive, what to do. And frankly, I don't even believe that there are any curves beyond this one. Now, they're the ones that wind up in the ditch or over the hill. And then there are some people who will try to just do their own thing, make truth mean whatever they want it to mean. So they're erratic. They'll speed up, slow down, speed up, slow down. And they don't really navigate the turns as well as they could because of that outlook. We need to understand that when truth addresses life, we need to listen to the truth. We need to be like the believers that we come across first in this text, who were the disciples of John the Baptist. And what we're going to see is this. The truth of God transforms those who will hear it. You ever notice in Scripture, there's a repeated phrase, let him who has ears to hear, hear. The idea is when we encounter the truth, we have the option to heed what the truth says. We can look at the truth and we can say, yes, I will embrace that. I believe that's true. I will accept the truth. And what we find here in the book of Acts is the teaching of the word of God, the teaching of the truth, offers some people a chance to change in our first example. Look at verses 1 through 4. And here we pick it up on the story that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. So Paul is going to a different city. If you remember earlier, Paul had said to the Ephesians, hey, if it's God's will, I'll return to you. Now Paul is making good on that promise. 
he decided to go back to Ephesus. And so he's there to do ministry. But notice the first verse goes on to say, there he found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now, when we look at John's disciples, we have to understand who they are. John the Baptist had a ministry that preceded the Lord Jesus Christ. And we read about him in the Gospels, and his ministry was important in the way of preparation. It was a baptism that he would call people to, to repent, that is, to turn away from their sin, to turn to God, and then to wait expectantly for the Messiah, who we know is Jesus. So here is this group of people, these disciples of John, and they were sincere believers. They believed the information that they had received up to that time. But there was a problem. They hadn't heard the rest of the story. They hadn't heard about Jesus and what was accomplished by his death on the cross and then by his resurrection and then the sending of the Holy Spirit. So here are sincere people seeking the truth, ready to receive it. And you know, what is so important about these believers is their willingness to believe what God tells them. They could have looked at what Paul was about to share with them about Jesus being the fulfillment of all that John the Baptist looked forward to. And they could have said, well, you know what? I'm a John the Baptist follower, and I'm not ready to change. I'm going to stay where I am. I'm going to do what I'm going to do, and nobody's going to tell me different. That isn't the way they approached it. How did they approach it? When Paul came to them and he started to question them about whether or not they had received the Holy Spirit, whether or not they had come to this personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ, they listened. They were ready to receive it. And here's what I find fascinating about this passage. God moved in the life of Paul to take him from where he was back to Ephesus in order to bring this important message to these followers of John. God uses human agents to bring the truth of the gospel. And that's so clearly taught in Scripture. Usually we hear this passage when a missionary comes to speak, but it's not just for missionaries. This is true of all of us. It asks the question, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Paul was that bearer of good news to these followers of John the Baptist who had taken up residence in Ephesus. He was bringing the truth of God's word, and he was sharing with them their personal need. We need to understand that the gospel, the truth of God, brings change to people's lives, brings the opportunity to know God, and we are the bearers of that message. Again, Paul says in this 10th chapter, faith comes from hearing the message and the message, message is heard through the word of Christ. 
That's our calling. That's our responsibility. We are to carry the message of God's Word, the Word of Christ, to those who will listen and not listen. Some will be like the people in Ephesus who were the followers of John who immediately received the message that Paul shared. They were ready and waiting to receive it. They wanted the truth. They longed for it. And here God sent Paul to bring them that truth. Now, as Paul interviewed them, notice he said, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they answered, no. No one has, uh, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. And Paul said John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him. That is Jesus. Here was Paul to share with them who Jesus is, what Jesus did, and how they could trust in him and receive the Holy Spirit. But then we come to verses 5 through 7. And what we find in this is trusting God's word brings about change. And that's what was experienced by these people again. They could have heard the message thus far that what they had wasn't enough, that they hadn't heard the whole story, that they hadn't been baptized in Jesus' name, and they could have said, I'm going to stand pat. I'm going to stay right where I am. I don't like change. I don't like to hear all of this other stuff. John had it right, nobody else, and I'm not going to hear what you have to say. That could have been what Paul encountered. But what did happen? Look at the text for the rest of the story as far as these followers of John the Baptist. Verse 5. On hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. What immediately happened after they believed? Obedience. They responded to the truth. When we trust the word of God, it brings change. It truly does. It transforms us. And that's what happened with these followers of John the Baptist. They heard the word and they didn't have to give it a thought. They didn't have to say, hey, I've got to pray about this. Hey, I've got to think this through. What was their immediate response? If that's who Jesus is, and that's what Jesus has asked of me, I do it. No questions, no thought, I'll be obedient. That's what real faith in the truth does. When we believe something, it affects us on the level of our decision making and where we live. So this is what they did. They were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. They were leaving the community of the followers of John the Baptist, and they were aligning themselves with the community of faith, the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. They immediately responded. And then something amazing also happens, verse 6. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied, and there were about 12 men and all. Now here we find something that's rather unusual. Paul laying hands on the people and they receive the Holy Spirit and they begin to speak in tongues. Some have taken this passage from the book of Acts and say that we only receive the Holy Spirit when somebody lays their hands on us 
and gives us the Holy Spirit, and that's not true. We are indwelled by the Holy Spirit the moment that we trust Jesus Christ as our personal Savior. Paul was demonstrating an apostolic gift so that all would know that the message that he was giving was true, that Christ might be glorified. He was demonstrating his authority as a follower of Jesus Christ. And we also see people who were in a time of transition. When you consider this, messages concerning Jesus traveled slowly in this first century. So they believed what they could. They responded to the light that they had received to that point. But when it came time to really make a decision about Christ, when they were given the truth of who God is, what did they do? They responded. The reception of the Holy Spirit is something that we can't see or measure or taste or touch, right? It's a spiritual thing that takes place in the heart or the life of a person. What happens here is very much like what happened with Cornelius. In the 10th chapter, Cornelius, while Peter was preaching the gospel, remember, did what? He responded and he began to speak in tongues. Why? So that those around him could see that he had received the Holy Spirit just as they had. It was an outward demonstration of an inward truth, and it had to take place because of the transitional time in which they lived. Paul's demonstration here with these Ephesian believers was accomplishing very much the same thing. And it was also a testimony to the Apostle Paul and the fact that God had given him authority to be an apostle. In fact, when writing to the Corinthians, Paul says this, the things that mark an apostle, signs, wonders, and miracles were done among you with great perseverance. So this miracle of Paul laying hands on them and giving them the Holy Spirit was, again, a, an attestation that Paul indeed is an apostle called of God. So it was a rather unique situation with a rather unique purpose. But then we come to the next group of people where the followers of John the Baptist were people who responded to the gospel immediately. We find that there are also those who will reject the gospel. And what we find is this, the truth of God triumphs even when people try to shut it down, when they try to crush it. Even when people reject the truth, the truth still has a purpose. Look at verse 8. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. Now here is Paul's message. He is sharing the truth of God's word. He is sharing with the people that they need to understand who Jesus is, that he has a kingdom, and they need to turn from where they are to the Messiah, the ruler of that kingdom. And he does it persuasively. He's sharing scripture with them. He's encouraging them with God's truth. But something that I find amazing in this text is what follows. Here is Paul speaking persuasively in the synagogue about the kingdom of God. But then look at verse 9. But some of them became obstinate and they refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. Now what I find amazing about this is what I see earlier 
in Ephesus. Turn back to the 18th chapter and look at verse 19. Here we find that Paul and Priscilla and Aquila arrive at Ephesus. And notice in the 19th verse it says, He himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And then look at verse 20. When they asked him to spend more time with them, he declined. But as he left, I will come back if it is God's will. And then he set sail from Ephesus. Now what's going on? Initially, here in Acts chapter 18, when the people heard the persuasion of Paul concerning the Messiah, they wanted to hear more. They were saying, stay stay here, speak to us, help us to understand what you're saying. God had, had called Paul to another place, but there was an initial interest. Now, Paul didn't leave them flat. He left Priscilla and Aquila to carry on the work. We also know that God had initially sent Apollos to Ephesus to carry on the work. We saw that earlier in the book of Acts. But something happens between Acts chapter 18 and Acts chapter 19 because this group that was initially receptive turned. They were no longer willing to hear what was offered in the way of truth. Something changed. And I think we get a hint to what that is in verse 9. Verse 9 says in chapter 19, but some of them became obstinate. Now the NIV translates this obstinate, but when we look in the original language, the idea behind this word obstinate is much more powerful. The idea that's being communicated is they hardened themselves to the truth. Hardened themselves. In other words, It wasn't anything that Paul had done. It wasn't anything that Priscilla, Aquila, or Apollos did. What caused them to change from being initially interested into being people who rejected? And that lies within their own heart. See, here's something about the truth. When you're confronted with the truth, you have an option. Accept the truth or reject the truth. Accepting the truth brings about change and transformation. We see that. Rejecting it becomes something that is easier and easier and easier to do with each rejection. The idea of them hardening themselves to the truth carries with it the idea that they become increasingly resistant to the truth and with each choice to become more and more resistant, they become stronger in their opposition. And you know, that's what happens with the gospel. When someone shares the gospel with you and you have the opportunity to receive it, it is unwise to resist it and say, I'll consider it later. What truly makes sense is to respond to it right here, right now. Because in resisting it, it becomes easier and easier and easier to resist it. And you can harden yourself to the truth of God. This is what happened with those in the synagogue. And they were experiencing full-blown rejection at this point. They were obstinate 
And then it also says they refused to believe. Now what that says to me is their opposition was more a matter of their will than their intellect. Refusing to believe means that you look at the truth and you see that it has merit, but you stubbornly choose to not respond. You refuse to trust. Not because it's untrustworthy, but because that's the choice, the course that you've chosen to follow. So what did these people do in verse 9? After they had hardened themselves, after they had refused to believe, they publicly maligned the way. Now the way refers to the followers of Christ. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. So those who followed Christ were referred to as those who were a part of the way. And here, they malign those who are followers of the way. And you know, that's something that I've discovered. The people who are the most radical against Christianity are people who often have at one time considered it almost persuaded, but then hardened themselves to it. This is what was going on here. The people in the synagogue became oppositional, and they wanted to shut down the ministry of the gospel. So what happened? When we go on into the ninth verse, we see God's word and his truth triumph over all opposition. It says right after they had maligned the way, that Paul left them and he took his disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. And then it goes on in verse 10 to say this went on for two years. So rather than isolating in the synagogue, what happens? He expands his ministry. He goes into a lecture hall and he not only has Jews to minister to, but he has Greeks as well. And so here are these people coming to hear the truth of the gospel. And God's word expands. It doesn't stay just within the synagogue because of this opposition. This is what God does with his truth. This church was planted right there in Ephesus through the work of Paul as he ministered the gospel, having been rejected by some. He went to others, and they were listening to the word of God. And look at that 10th verse. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. When people try to shut down God's word, God's truth, isn't it amazing how God takes it and expands it, spreads it? It moves from Ephesus to the entire province. God's truth goes on. But then we go on to the last category. What I want us to see here is the truth of God taken the wrong way can cause damage. What we're going to see in this last section are those who take the word of God wrong and the damage that that causes and then those who take the word of God rightly 
and the wonderful things that happen as a result of it. Now, when we come to this story, it's one of the most unusual stories in the book of Acts. As a matter of fact, first time I read it, I, I chuckled. I mean, basically, we are witness to a demonic beatdown. And these sons of Sceva who go in all proud, all thinking that they can just impose their will and access the name of Jesus in any way that they see fit, they learn very quickly that that can't be. Look at verse 11. Here are some people who treacherously try to hijack the faith. In verse 11 it says, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and their evil spirits left them. Now, God was doing, again, miracles to establish the ministry and the work of the Apostle Paul. He was demonstrating the truth that Paul was sharing. And so all of these people who are healed of their illnesses by just a cloth touching Paul and being taken to the sick person, it was a demonstration of his apostolic authority that he was continuing the healing ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ in a very real way. God was working through the Apostle Paul. Now, there are televangelists who have tried that today. And we've seen dumpsters full of cloths that people send a seed gift of faith into in order to have this take place. And as a result, they're scammed. And very much, they're doing the same thing that the sons of Sceva did right here in the book of Acts. They're hijacking a story from the scripture, and they're using it for their own purposes and ends. So here is Paul. He's doing these miracles, and legitimate miracles were taking place. People were healed. Demons were cast out. So then look at verse 13. Some Jews who went around driving out spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed, and they would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. You know what was going on? Culturally, in Ephesus, they were worshipers of Artemis. There was a temple that was right in the center of Ephesus that was the largest temple to any deity in the then known world. As a matter of fact, it was considered one of the seven wonders of the world in their time, this huge temple erected to Artemis. And what happened as people went in to worship Artemis, a part of that cult, that belief system, was you could invoke Artemis's name, invoke some of the symbols on the temple that was erected to her, and you would have power, you would have magic by invoking her name. So what Acts talks about are these seven sons of Sceva. And I kind of envisioned them as people who pick and choose what they like, what they don't like from one system of belief, and they come up with this amalgam of this belief system where they've picked and they've chosen and they've gotten the things that are to their advantage, and they use them. What God will demonstrate through this is the power of Jesus Christ, and that supersedes the cultic magicians who worshipped Artemis. 
Paul would speak in depth to the Ephesians about this when he talked about the power of Christ. For instance, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19, Paul talks about Jesus' incomparably great power to us who believe that is a power like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. So God's authority, God's power, was demonstrated by what Jesus did, the resurrection, the ascension. And notice verse 21. This places him far above all rule and authority, power and dominion. References to the demonic or spirit world. Jesus' authority is real. And Paul drives this home to the Ephesians. And notice he says he's above every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. Then he says this in Ephesians chapter 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. God was promising his followers that they could prevail over the demonic activity that was rampant in Ephesus. So here is Paul demonstrating that truth to the Ephesians. I suspect when the Ephesians read these thoughts in Paul's letter, they thought back to what Paul had demonstrated as an apostle in his power over the spiritual forces of darkness. But what happens with these sons of Sceva? The sons of Sceva, like I said, were those guys that went and just picked and chose what they liked from each religion. They were related to the chief priests, so they picked that from Judaism. They do spells and incantations to have power over the spirits, probably for money, right? And so they take that from the worship of Artemis. And now here comes Paul preaching the gospel, talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, and what happens? They pick the name of Jesus. And they say, well, if Paul could invoke the name of Jesus and cast out demons, so can we. But what they didn't realize was this. Jesus' name is not just a name to be invoked to get what you want. Jesus is to be believed in, trusted. We entrust ourselves to him. We don't just invoke his name and talk about his power and his glory and all of those things, but never trust him. The sons of Sceva tried to do that. You know, as I reflected on this, I thought, you know, there are many people who try to approach Jesus like these sons of Sceva. We pick and choose the things we like about Jesus, and that's our Savior. We need to look into God's Word and understand that Jesus is not someone that we just pick and choose the things that we like and make up the rest as we go along, and that's the person that we have relationship with. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus of the Bible is so much more than a name to be invoked. The Jesus of the Bible sacrificed himself on the cross for us. The Jesus of the Bible offers us deliverance from sin. The Jesus of the Bible 
has power to transform our lives. So we believe in his death on the cross and we believe in his power to change our lives and we entrust ourselves to him and we ask him to take our sin-sick, messed-up lives and transform us so that we can have a relationship with the Father. The sons of Sceva didn't do that. So look at what happens. Here are these sons of Sceva. They invoke Jesus' name and then they come across... A demon. This man is demon-possessed. And speaking through this man, look at what the spirit, the evil spirit within him says in verse 15. One day, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? Now I find this insightful. The demons knew who they were dealing with. These guys didn't have a relationship with Jesus. They weren't even remotely connected with Paul. They were freelancing. And to demonstrate their power over these people who were professing to be connected with Jesus, look at what happens. Verse 16, the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all And he gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. One man takes on seven, and he beats them so severely that he rips their clothes off, which in their culture meant profound shame. Nakedness and shame are very closely related. And they ran out of their bleeding from the beating that they took. We can't just invoke the name of Jesus, and not believe. They tried it, and they failed miserably. But then what we find that follows is, to me, even more amazing. Transformation comes when the truth is believed. And with this part, we're going to close, but look at what it says. When this became known to the Jews and the Greeks living in Ephesus, They were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord was held in high honor. People glorified God because they saw the difference between counterfeit and actual followers of Jesus. And I want you to let that thought that I just said really marinate in your minds, the counterfeit and the actual Because we have some who were living like counterfeit believers that will follow. Look at verse 18. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their sins. Now, I want you to look at the way this is framed in our Bibles in verse 18. Many of those who believed, that's past tense. The people who are mentioned from verse 18 on are Believers. But as believers, they were holding on to things in their lives that they should not have. When they saw what God had done, notice the scripture tells us in verse 18 that they openly confessed their sins. Now, confess does not just mean to speak. 
The word confess carries with it to agree with God. When we confess our sins to God, what we are saying is, God, I agree with you that this is sin. It's not just lip service, but it's actual agreement. So here are some believers that were holding on to some things in their lives that were affecting their ability to share the gospel, to do the work of the Lord. Look at what they were holding on in verse 19. A number who had practiced sorcery, so they at least left the sorcery, brought their scrolls and burned them publicly. They left the sorcery, but they left some of the remnants of that sorcery in their lives. The scrolls. And I think as we read in this text, we can see perhaps why they did that. They burned these scrolls, we're told in verse 19, and when they calculated the value of the scrolls, it came to 50,000 drachmas. So here are people who had practiced sorcery. They had left the sorcery, but they retained some of the accoutrements of sorcery, and they needed to get it out of their house. They held on to it because it had monetary value. But they let go of it because it wasn't pleasing to God. And even rather than taking it and sharing it with other people and saying, here, I'll sell the proceeds and keep the money and give 10% to the Lord, they burned it so that no one else would be defiled by what God had touched in their lives and said, you need to turn from this. They did it. They gave it up. See, I believe the Holy Spirit was at work in their lives. And this sin that had been just sort of ruminating in the background and hanging around, when they saw what happened to the sons of Sceva, when they saw that the name of the Lord was held in honor, they looked at themselves and they said, I am not honoring the Lord. Brothers and sisters, that's a question I think we need to ask ourselves. Are there things in my life that are not honoring the Lord? Are there things in my life that tie me to sins that I've turned from? but I'm still letting them hang around? Are there things in my life that tie me to the world, to where people see these things about me and assume that I'm a part of what the world is doing? We need to burn those things, get them out of our lives. Look at what happens when this happened. Verse 20. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. You know what happened when the people of God got serious about their relationship with God? The truth prevailed, and people could hear it and embrace the truth. You know what happens when the world looks at the Christian and says, it's no different than I am. The word has no power. We share about a life that is changed by Jesus Christ, and if we don't evidence that change 
our words are hollow. They can't hear what we're saying for what our lives scream out to them in the way of duplicity and hypocrisy. These people were getting serious about their relationship with the Lord. And when the Spirit of God said, get that out of your life, they responded. So I ask you this morning, are there scrolls in your life that you need to burn? Are there things that cause your witness for Christ to be compromised? Are you willing, in honor of the Lord, to rid yourself of those things? I don't know your lives. I don't know what your scrolls are. But God calls us to yield them to him. And what takes place? The word of the Lord goes out with power. You want to see God powerfully work through your life. You will yield these things to him. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for this text.